we look to our Lord in prayer. Father, now in this second service, as we speak to those in this setting as well as the live stream, minister to hearts, minister to those in the first service who have heard this teaching, the third who will pour your spirit upon all. It's your word, not ours. We're interested in biblical truth, not personal opinion. We know that truth is relevant. It connects with where we're at, what we need. And here we see that incredible tension of past and present, gain and loss, in two chapters positioned next to each other. And maybe this is a description of the chapters of our lives. So, Father, no matter what the needs are this morning, you're here. You're ministering. You're with us. So, Father, in these moments to come, we're praying once again that you would warm these hearts, to engage these minds, to shape these wills. So once again, our Father, we've come here. We've come here to see Jesus, Him only. Praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It happened decades ago, you see. Now at that point, he was a pivotal figure throughout the, throughout the populations around the globe. His name was Andrei Sakharov, and he stood up to the old Soviet Union. And, and he, as he was writing his memoirs, his wife would type, edit, kind of nurse the words, so to speak, doing everything she could to make certain that what he had to say about, about the atheism of the government of that setting would be understood globally. Well, the biographer tells us that Sakharov worked on his memoirs in Gorky, rewriting sections because, interestingly, they kept vanishing. Then one day, he met Elena, his wife, at the train station, and with trembling lips told her the authorities stole it. It's gone. It's lost. Now, Elena tells us that he looked like a man who had just learned of the death of a close friend. But get this. After a few days, Sokharov returned to his work. And according to his wife, each time he rewrote his memoirs, there was something new, something better. He turned his loss into greater gain. You and I are confronted with the fact that life is involved with a series of losses as well as gains. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord, you see. So we sing. And it's how to manage the dynamic of the gain and loss, the loss and gain factor in our lives that's necessary to live life well before our Lord. Now what you and I have to bear in mind is that while chapter 29 deals with the past, in Job's experience, chapter 30 deals with the present. And as we penned in our insert for this week, it's important that uh, our longings for the past will not change the realities of the present. We've got to understand that. That you and I can learn from the past, but we cannot live in the past. And furthermore, our memories tend to be selective. We often choose what to eliminate, what to accentuate in order to be able to put a, a better take on, on, on what we have gone through in life. What I want to do now with you is to position ourselves at that ash heap. There's Job. We're, we're going to be one of his counselors. And we're going to try to figure out how do you minister effectively to somebody who has gone through intense loss in life and who has a tendency to look back on the so-called good old days and wishes somehow, some way, he or she could transport the past into the present as if nothing has changed. They seem to want to make the changeable changeless, you see. So how do you minister to the Job's at the ash heaps of our lives that are looking back at the past with fondness? Three losses I want to identify with you this morning in chapter 30. And the first comes out of verse 1 down through verse 15. We'll put it this way, that when for some, those that you're ministering to, when for some, where the past seems better than the present... Join me now. Seek to minister where the loss of respect is felt concerning their relationships. Some people lose a job and all of a sudden they feel a loss of respect for who they are as a person. Others once had greater wealth than they have now and feel a sense of loss of respect as if their significance was based upon what they had rather than who they are in Christ. Respect is an issue when it comes to life significance. And how do you handle the losses of life when it comes to the relationships and the respect interwoven into our everyday dynamics? Well, now, and notice what Job does. It hurts. But again and again, he chooses to learn from the past but not live in the past. But there's a tension, because he sometimes will want to. But in verse 1, and in verse 9, and again in verse 16, he utilizes the word now. He needs to live in the now. And not in yesterdays. He's got to live for God in the todays. And so now he kicks it off, doesn't he, in verse 1. He says, but now, 
And he looks at all those people who evidently found his sense of significance and what he had and no longer has. And so here's his take. This is his perception. Is it real? They laugh at me. Men who are younger than I. Whose fathers I would have disdained. He doesn't say I did, but would have. To set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. Though want and hard hunger. They gnaw the ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick salt wood and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. And they're driven out from human company, and they shout after them as a thief. And in the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth or the rocks, among the bushes they bray under the nettles, they huddle together, a senseless and nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And he's hurting, and now he's looking back at them, and watch yourself if you're experiencing loss. Watch the cynicism. Check out the sarcasm. Are you dealing with reality or is that simply a perception of the way that people are viewing you? What do you do in light of all this? How do you handle loss? You know, there's this extraordinary story that's told of Beethoven. He lived a lot of his life fearing that he would go deaf. But his hearing diminished until at last all the hearing was gone. Biographer says that Beethoven finally found the strength he needed to go on despite his loss. And to everyone's amazement, he wrote some of his greatest music after he was totally deaf. And with all distractions now shut out, music flooded in on him as fast as his pen could write. The biographer states, his deafness became a, an asset. His loss became his gain. Turn a memory of the past into a ministry for the present. Take the experience of a loss, you see, and allow it to become, if you will, a form of an exclamation point in the present where you're able to say three days later, Jesus, despite having lost life, was raised from the dead. People grapple with this thing. And they wonder, how do I go on keeping on keeping on? William Sangster, who was a gifted pastor in another era in London, when he found out he was dying of a progressive muscular atrophy, made four resolutions and faithfully kept them. That number one, I will never complain. Number two, I will keep the home bright. Number three, I will count my blessings. And number four, I will try to turn it to gain. Now we gain from what Job is doing. Yeah. There's raw emotion here in these chapters, isn't there? 
You got Job who's talking one way in 29 and now the opposite way in 30. And you're saying, Job, you're contradicting yourself. But so often in the emotions of loss of life, what you're going to find is are contradictory statements that are being shaped more by the emotions than by, by the resolution of their, of their beliefs. They've got to keep on keeping on and stay centered. Job, you've got to stay centered because now another and now kicks in. You saw the first one in verse 1, and now there's a second one in verse 9. He says, now. doesn't say it was. He says, now. Now I've become their song. It's as if now they're writing music about him. Lyrics are about him. I've become a byword to them, he says. He says, they hold me. They keep aloof from me. It seems as though they keep distance. They don't know quite what to say. You ever felt that way when you've experienced something traumatic or dramatic in life? You know, my, you know what it is in your life. It stands out. It all of a sudden, when they're, they're approaching you, it seems as though there's a little bit of distance that develops as they make their way around you rather than walk directly toward you. That's what Job is saying here in essence. Well, here's his take in verse 10. Again, it's perception. Watch out. Not all perception is reality. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. And now, what do we learn from this? What can we gain from this, we're asking? But then Jesus. There he is before the chief priests whole council and they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But Matthew tells us in chapter 26 verse 60, they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Sometimes that's what's best in terms of response. Silence is golden principle. Well, in verse 11, it seems as though he still has the sense of being distanced from God, doesn't he? He doesn't utilize capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. No, he's got more of a generic name for God at this point, though he does believe in God. God is sovereign because God has loosed my cord, humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. Now, here's the old assumption, accusation, tension once again in the book of Job. You see, Job's supposed counselors have made an assumption about Job that leads to an accusation against Job. Assumption. Because you're suffering, Job, you must have sinned, done something wrong. You did a sinful thing. Repent of that sin and then the blessings will return. Assumption leads to accusation. But what Job's going to have to do at this point is watch himself because he makes assumptions about God. 
which leads to accusations about God. God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. Watch out for that tension between assumption and accusation. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As though a wide breach, they come and amid the crash, they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. and My prosperity is passed away like a cloud. What's going on? The sense of loss of respect. What do you do when... There's relationships involved. But then, but then, Dr. Walker, Percy kicks in. He's got this fictional hero in his book, Love in the Ruins, where a once respected psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Moore, he groans out loud, oh, for you see the tables had just been turned on him because now the psychiatrist finds himself as a psychiatric patient. And his colleagues now are distancing themselves. They no longer have words. And in the novel, like Job's friends, Moore's colleagues knew not what to say. Yet a commentator states, a fellow patient of a different ethnicity, reared in quite different circumstances than the well-heeled white southern doctor, was the only one who could speak healing words. And this humble man, this humble sufferer, validated Moore's lament by saying, Ain't it the truth, though? Ain't it the truth? And Percy says that after that, the doctor could finally say that he began to feel better because somebody... Somebody spoke in a way in which they communicated, I understand. Ain't it the truth? Sometimes we need that. To be brought into the dynamics of living. The sense that truth is changeless, even though the times are changing. And we need to figure out how to connect a chapter 29, verse 2, to a chapter 30, verse 1, and again in a verse 9. And what do you do with memories of the past? And how do you turn them into a ministry in the present? A second loss. It comes out of verse 16 through 23. When, for some, the past seems better than the present, you're at Job's ash heap now, you and I, we've got to figure out how to seek to minister where the loss of blessing is felt concerning that person's God. Another end now. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. And he, once again, he looks back at the so-called, so-called good old days. He's got a memory. A few years ago, I'm with my father's physician and Dr. Tim Smith and I, we'd gone to school together. And so Tim was now taking my father through a memory test. And so he's posing questions. My father is answering the questions. And my mind goes back uh, to a story in which 
This man had gone through his own battery of, of memory test questions and had come home, man in his 80s, and his wife sat down in the living room and said, you know what, I'm going to go in the kitchen, find something to eat. And he gets up and she begins to go and she says, can you get me some ice cream? And he said, sure. And she said, you better write it down. He said, I don't need to write it down. She says, and by the way, I would like some whipped cream on it. Write it down. He says, I don't need to write it down. And then she said, I'd like to have a cherry on top. Please, would you write it down? And the elderly individual said, I don't need to write it down. And so he went into the kitchen, and who knows what he was doing for the next 20 minutes to a half hour, but he came back out and served her ham and eggs. And his wife looked at him and she said, I knew you'd forget. You forgot the toast. (laughs) Memories. Selective memories. Dangerous to try to figure out how to make life work when it seems as though the past has invaded the present. And you long for the good old days, but were the good old days the good old days? And that becomes a question now that's got to be answered time and time again by people who love Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and want to minister effectively in the times in which they live. Because as Moses put it, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also went again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks. Why the leeks, I want to ask. The onions, the garlic. It's what comes next that captures my attention. But now, our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. And all of a sudden, for the Israelites, the servitude and slavery of Egypt begins to look like the, like the good old days. Beware of viewing the old days as the good old days. Because he says, and now my soul is poured out within me, and days of affliction have taken hold of me. And now, watch out for those nights, the evening hours. Man, they have a way of getting us to be sometimes not merely reflective, but overly introspective. The night racks my bones. The pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment's disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. Um, Could we say capital L-O-R-D at this point? Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for God. Uh, Job, even what he has in common with his counselors at this point, is that they have a view of the sovereignty of God, yes. But the sovereign God for them is a distant God. So he says in verse, in verse 19, God has cast me into the mire. I become the dust and ashes. 
Is this you? Check out verse 20. I cry to you for help. You do not answer. It's as if your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I stand and you only look at me. Silence. Once again, it's the expression of a hurting heart regarding what he views as unanswered prayers from the heavens. But ponder these thoughts. Unanswered prayer sometimes happens to even the very best of believers. The Apostle Paul experienced that with his thorn in the flesh. Unanswered prayers, when they happen, when it happens, except the fact that it's humanly unexplainable. You don't know why the silence but you've got to remain faithful in the midst of the silence. And when it happens, bear in mind, God has a higher purpose in mind. The silence of heavens. Pinkas Zuckerman was one of the world's greatest violinists. He was conducting the master classes at Aspen. And as a writer puts it, young musicians from all over the world had come to perform in the presence of this extraordinary virtuoso performer. Well, before an audience of mostly musicians and music critics, the young artist took the stage in turn, and after each performance, Zuckerman would analyze the playing, offer suggestions, provide advice, and then compliment the artist with some encouraging words. Then he would pick up his own violin and to demonstrate techniques that he thought would be helpful to the young performer. Well, toward the end of the program, a young artist evidently gave a brilliant performance that came close to matching the virtuosity of, of Zuckerman. And so after the applause subsided, Zuckerman once again picked up his violin, tucked it under his chin, but after holding that position for several seconds, he lowered his instrument without having played a single note. And then we're told that without a word, he returned his violin to its case. As all of a sudden, shouts of bravo were heard from the audience followed by a deafening applause. For as one writer puts it, in appreciation of the master's supremely encouraging compliment of silence. Could it be that your unanswered prayers could it be that this is the Master's supremely encouraging compliment of silence for your soul?
to all the jobs in this service as well as streaming. Ponder the silence. There's extraordinary wisdom in living for God in the midst of the silence from the heavens. And once you and I have developed this spiritual discipline, keep in mind that the emotions are still there. You're going to swing one way, you're going to swing the next. Here's Job again in 29, you've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Assumption leading to accusation. But assumption leading to accusation because of silence. He doesn't know what chapters 1 and 2 were all about. We do. And it could be that you've got a chapter 1 and 2 in your own life experience that you know nothing about. And now you've got to live with some silence. But bear in mind, this could be the supremely encouraging compliment from the Master. You're ready for the third loss? It's there, and you and I, we've positioned ourselves now at the ash heap, and we've got jobs in our lives, don't we? People who've experienced loss, and now... They're looking to the future. They have processed the past. But where do you go when there's a tomorrow that has to be lived? Thirdly, when for some the past seems better than the present, seek to minister where thirdly the loss of hope is felt concerning their future. Hope. Everybody needs a sense of hope. So here's now your Job, who's hurting at the ash heap. And you and I are up now to 24, and it's profound. Yet does one, does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? And in his disaster cry for help? Now notice the tension between helplessness and hopelessness. You ever see that among some people you minister to? What are you going to say? How are you going to bring truth to bear in the, reality, in the realities of life? Emotions. Verse 25. Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? He's talking about how he cared for others. Is there going to be anybody who cares for him? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? The needy experienced his loving care. Can somebody care for him? But check out verse 26. But when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I waited for light, darkness came. There is the hope, hopeless tension. What do you do with it? sometime track with me and go back through the book of Job and his give and take with his three counselors and, and notice how he utilizes the word hope. For example, in chapter 6, verse 11, what strength do I have that I should still hope? Chapter 7, verse 6, 
My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Chapter 13, 15. Though he slay me, speaking of God, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. You feel the tension? Powerful. And then the striking figure of speech. He uproots my hope like a tree. Chapter 19, verse 10. And you and I know that a hope that is rooted is a hope that is alive. But a hope that is rooted up is a hope that is dead. Where do you go? You go to Jesus. And the three days later experience. Where as Peter put it, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, where in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In chapter 1, verse 3. So now the imagery still persists. And so now Job is now having to transport himself from the past, deals with the present, but now he's dealing with the future. How do I handle feelings of helplessness combined with hopelessness where I've uttered just previously in my words to the counselors, I am hopeful. What do I do with this dynamic tension of living with suffering in a fallen world? He's inwardly processing My inward parts of 27 are in turmoil, never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly, cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals. He thought he had a brotherhood, a fellowship. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black, fails from me. My, My bones burn with the heat. And notice now it's as if he pulls out the flute. It's turn to morning. My pipe to the voice of those, you see, who weep. How do you keep on keeping on, you might ask. But then maybe the answer comes of the World War II experience. Where the U.S. Army was forced to retreat from the Philippines. And some of their soldiers were, well, they were left behind became prisoners of the Japanese. And they nicknamed themselves the ghosts. In other words, souls that were unseen by their nation. And so on that infamous Bataan death march, they were forced to walk over 70 miles. Historian tells us, knowing that those who were slow or weak could be bayoneted by their captors or die from dysentery and lack of water. And those who made it through the march spent the next three years in a hellish prison of war camp. But by early 1945, 513 men were still alive at that camp. But I mock what comes next. (coughs) They were giving up hope. But get this. The U.S. Army was on its way back. The POWs had heard the frightening news that prisoners were being executed as the Japanese retreated from the advancing U.S. Army. 
their wavering hope was however met by one of the most magnificent rescues of wartime history in an astonishing feat 120 U.S. Army soldiers combined with 200 Filipino guerrillas outflanked 8,000 Japanese soldiers to rescue the POWs. Alvy Robbins was one of the rescuers. He tells the rest of the story. He describes how he found a prisoner muttering in a darkened corner of his barracks, tears coursing down his face. I thought we had been forgotten, the POW said. We've been giving up hope. No, sir, you are not forgotten. Robbins went on to say to him, You are heroes. We've come for you. This is what you need to say in essence to the person at the ash heap in your life who's experiencing multiple losses and is wrestling with loss-gain tension, the past-present tension. What do I do and how do I keep on keeping on? Well, God has a higher purpose. He knows chapter 1 and 2 and when perhaps you and I have never read it. He sees what we can't see. And all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. For as Sakharov's wife put it, each time he rewrote his memoirs, there was something new. There was something better as he turned his loss into a global gain. Let's stand together. Father, we see loss of life on that cross. Three days later, we see gain as evidenced by the empty tomb. In all these services, including those following live streaming, we grapple, Father, with the losses, but then we grapple furthermore with he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and we realize that the evil one wanted Job to put his faith in the blessings God gave rather than the blesser who is God himself. And Father, if you temporarily remove the blessings, May our faith remain strong in the one who blesses, who gives and takes away. And knowing that the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb bring clarity to our ash heaps. So no matter what we're going through and no matter who it is in our circles of relationships that find as though they don't have yet answers to the losses of life, bring clarity through our words sense of ministry from our hearts. 
May the result be, Father, that their eyes are being redirected towards the one who sent Jesus to die for our sins. And for this, Father, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.